Thank you uh, so much for letting me come back and give this opportunity to present some of my uh, research again in this seminar. Um, just to give you a bit of an overview, I'm going to talk about this ethnographic study that uh, Stanley mentioned I've been working on over the past couple of years. And in terms of theme, I'm going to draw on, on a part of the study that examined experiences with bariatric surgery and focus on the transformation of eating uh, as a kind of theme to look at. And I want to do that through the lens of intersubjectivity and, and embodiment in order to understand chronicity in the context of relations of care. Uh, so just a little bit about the study. Uh, the paper is... Um, uh, like I said, more analysis from this larger study that uh, really ended in the at the end of 2015. So last year when I came, we had just had all of this data was all new, and we're t I was really trying to look at what is here. Uh, and this larger study was uh, really looking at diabetes management, and um, a study that I've uh, been doing with my colleague at Michigan State, Linda Hunt. And so the dimensions of that research that I presented last year uh, uh, now have been kind of completed or ready for submit to a couple of articles, and we just had this new piece come out now in Medical Anthropology Quarterly that looks at the ways that the electronic health record system prioritizes institutional needs during pa uh, patient appointments and really silences narratives in care. Um, but the study itself was quite big, uh, bigger kinds of goals uh, we were interested in exploring reconceptualizations of risk uh, status and treatment responsibility, clinical care choices, and especially as these impacted uh, diverse patient groups. Uh, the study was funded by ELSI, the Eth Eth Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications of uh, Genetics Research branch of the National Institutes of Health, and so an important dimension of what we did was looking at ethical and social implications of genomic discourse in understandings of group identity and concepts of race, race and ethnic um, difference, but I'm not going to talk very much about that today, actually. Uh, and then once we got into the clinics where we were doing our work, we really uh, began to see how important the intersections of uh, diabetes and obesity were in clinical practice and transformations in patient identity uh, really necessitating this rapid uh, change in, in relation to technological approaches, both in terms of the treatment of diabetes, including bariatric surgery as a treatment for diabetes, as well as the health information technologies piece that we've uh, already published on. So uh, the study itself um, is about an 18-month study. We were in two clinics, a diabetes clinic and a weight services clinic in a very large healthcare system uh, in the Midwestern United States, as Stanley mentioned. And uh, we conducted clinical observations, which uh, included a very detailed uh, observation of patient appointments, as well as kind of the daily activities and routines around the clinic. Uh, we went to support groups and um, classes and, and that kind of thing. And then specific to the bariatric surgery clinic, they had these weekly team meetings that were actually quite informative, where the clinicians got together to kind of talk about problem patients. Um, and so I spent a lot of, uh, as much time as I could attending those meetings as well. And then we did medical chart review for all of the 52 patients that we ended up interviewing. Uh, and we also interviewed 23 clinicians. 
And of the 52 patients, 20 were patients who were uh, preparing for or had recently had uh, bariatric, mostly recently had bariatric surgery. There are a couple of patients that were in there for revision for a surgery they might have had. Um, I think one person, uh, the longest time was 14 years before. Um, so just some background on this surgery. Uh, it's kind of been around since the 1950s and um, usually kind of seen as a, a last resort for people whose weight is considered medically dangerous and disabling, but has increasingly become routine. And um, as uh, this, these numbers show uh, for 2015, I wasn't able to find something a little more up to date. Uh, we have nearly 200,000 operations performed in the United States. And the graphics here kind of give you a quick idea of what it looks like. The, uh, um, one surgery involves either reducing the stomach size and rearranging the upper intestine, and that one's the Roux-en-Y or gastric bypass surgery. And in the other version, the sleeve gastrectomy, the stomach is reduced and the excess is cut away. Um, now, for patients over a relatively extensive period of time, they follow a program uh, in, in this particular clinic, and I should say this is not uh, uniform uh, across uh, bariatric clinics or weight management clinics across the United States. There's uh, uh, that uh, slide previously had uh, uh, those stats are from the American Society for Bariatric and Metabolic Surgery, and that is kind of a certification board in there that uh, certify these centers of excellence, and that was the type of clinic that we were working in here, and they're not all the same. But in this one, uh, they, they follow this pretty intensive program where they're really focused on uh, being prepared for post-surgical life. And this stage of patienthood is characterized by the assessment of uh, one's own life and choices and transformation of these to reintegrate into their new lives. And uh, so the this timeline that's at the clinic's uh, website sets out the steps of the program we studied and uh, while it seems to look like it suggests this very flowing, linear uh, uh, process, a route from signing up to long-term success, we found that, in fact, many patients' experiences might better be visualized as a kind of game of snakes and ladders, where depending on insurance plans, their, how they can pay for it, uh, some might bypass a number of these steps, and um, Others might get trapped at different stages along the way or perhaps go through many of the steps and then have to start over again, start back at the top. Um, so in this approach, care is focused on, in, on the individual, but um, I also want to focus on the ways in which patients' work is intersubjectively constituted in relations with others. And these include, of course, clinicians whose work is transformative, but also family, friends, coworkers, community members, and so on, who must themselves also be transformable and transformative for the patient to make it to this finish line and continue long-term success. Um, so what I'm thinking through now with this research is how frameworks of intersubjectivity and embodiment are useful for getting at the complexities of chronicity, not solely as an experience of living with chronic illness, uh, within and outside biomedical context, but through the multiple sites of relations of care. And I tried to visualize this a little bit here with this, uh, with this graphic to um, uh, kind of show the phenomenological aspects or dimensions of these processes. And I'll look at these uh, in turn uh, throughout the presentation. So I'll come back to this. 
and just kind of pause here a minute to talk, give, give you some uh, definition of the terms and concepts I'm talking about. Now you'll notice, uh, just I sort of didn't realize this, but organically it turns out that I find Lenore's, Lenore Manderson's work uh, particularly lucid and relevant, and uh, I find her contributions support what I'm thinking a lot across these three domains. Uh, the analytical methodology of cultural phenomenology uh, that I'm attempting to use here, especially her analysis of personhood in the context of changing bodily boundaries, as well as her work on chronicity and transactions of care. And uh, Thomas Sordis provides us with this kind of handy framework of cultural phenomenology as a lens through which to see the dynamics of the social self uh, in body-world relations, which he situates as an analytical method in relation to theories, uh, obviously, of uh, perception with reference to Merleau-Ponty, uh, practice with re reference to Bourdieu, and uh, discipline and governmentality in reference to Foucault. Um, and, uh, however, um, I think he kind of maybe overcomplicates things because even though he doesn't cite Shepard Hughes and Locke's uh, 1987 piece, Three Bodies Approach, or the Mindful Body, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, it seems that their model aligns and is perhaps clearer in, in terms of what uh, I want to get at here. Um, and, and then care uh, is a particularly fascinating human activity through which to understand these body-world relations. Care and caring relations are fruitful sites for cultural, or cultural phenomenological analysis uh, appearing across the context of clinical delivery of care, care services, self-care, caring for others, as well as structures and ideologies of care. And uh, care has very diverse and complex meanings. I got kind of caught up in the variety of synonyms for care in my thesaurus, uh, which included uh, maintenance, attention, duty, worry, burden, support, thought, custody, protection, treatment, tending, and love, just to name a few. Uh, care involves notions of obligation, which may be embedded in and extend existing relations. Uh, they involve the active performance of caregiving, which is animated by and with the politics of healthcare systems, and involve, of course, moral economies of biocitizenship in relation to that. And so it's a really interesting expanding area of critical attention of anthropologists uh, being taken up in contexts of relational and effective practices which trouble the dichotomy between vulnerable and burdened and complicate our understandings of intersubjectivity and reciprocity. And then they also uh, reveal further the dynamic scope of biotechnological reach into selfhood, everyday life, and dominant ideologies. And then finally, with regard to chronicity, uh, Sue Estroff in the early 90s uh, provided us with a, a very good def definition in terms of reference to patient experience of illness as codified through cultural ideas about identity and productivity. Um, and she really signaled our attention to this intersubjective kind of biological, clinical, as well as socio-political dimensions of chronicity as process in which the allocation of resources are mediated by numerous factors. Uh, at the same time, chronicity kind of suggests this elusiveness of healing. It's degenerative, continuing long-term, enduring. Nonetheless, uh, at least in the United States context, this kind of collective belief in a neoliberal market-driven technological innovation 
features predominantly in weaving together the therapeutic with other notions of economic and social efficacy towards the eradication of chronic disease. However, uh, Manderson, again, now this time with Carolyn Smith-Morris, um, argues that anthropologists, have, we've kind of taken for granted the dichotomy uh, that, uh, and conventions of biomedicine that uh, kind of put acute versus um, chronic. And you know, while we, we've probably done a good job of tracking how, uh, or how illness itself tracks inequality and vulnerability, we need to be conscious of these broader processes that, uh, of chronicity and fix our gaze more broadly on um, social and cultural contexts that pattern health and well-being and which also obscure um, in interrogations of causal links as well as associations between society, economy, polity, and the distribution of disease. Uh, as they say, the dominant paradigm has had, quote, a political use, directing research, shaping insurance policies, investing in hospitals and pharmaceutical advances, and uh, on that flip side of that, of course, hospital services, insurance companies, and pharmaceutical industries share an interest in maintaining the disease paradigm. Um, hope you can see this. I see it's quite small because of uh, in this graphic crams in a lot of chronic uh, conditions uh, to talk about the, the uh, benefits of having bariatric surgery. And I, I think as a, as a biomedical intervention into chronicity, it's uh, interesting to me in the ways that it simultaneously involves both embodiment and disembodiment. It intercedes somewhat dramatically on the bodies of individuals, uh, as it also promises to separate them from the materiality of suffering. Uh, also, the operation is increasingly marketed globally with promises of eliminating or, and greatly reducing a broad range of chronic conditions and ailments, uh, whether obesity is comorbid, a gateway to these conditions, or now increasingly not even part of the e equation. So, for example, in um, like the work I presented here last year about uh, the use of the surgery or surgery discourse as a kind of off-label cure for diabetes, obesity is minimized as surgeons push for treatment algorithms that include prescribing surgery without having to meet BMI thresholds. Um, so this image is found at the website of the clinic where I did my research, but it's been reproduced and modified into a number of different versions and is kind of ubiquitous in bariatric surgery advertising around the world. At, uh, at, at my clinic's website, it appears on a page called The Facts, and uh, it, where the first thing at the top is um, information from the NIH and the Centers for Disease Control that uh, present obesity as a national epidemic and the leading cause of death, or second leading cause of death in the U.S. And then under this, there's an explanation of uh, body mass index or BMI and a convenient link for the website visitor to calculate my own BMI. And then below that is this image. Um, or I'm sorry, below this image, and you just scroll down, there are these bullet points that declare the futility of dieting, that talk about the determinism of genetics, uh, the specter of hunger hormones, uh, and challenges of uh, the body's weight set point. And so these all segue logically to the surgical interventions offered by the hospital, which are explained in two short uh, animated video clips. And altogether, this image, the facts, the tools, and the media situate obesity, as well as the person who is using the website as a biological citizen in the context of an American national epidemic and structure, responsibility, and choice. 
intervening on conditions that involve self-management and so-called lifestyle change by individuals, bariatric surgery is appealing for its power to both circumvent and boost individual agency, uh, aligning with a variety of perspectives on control, responsibility, and choice in chronic disease prevention and management. And people with type 2 diabetes who are also obese are doubly marked, as uh, Greenhog and Carney describe as bad biocitizens, in the kind of moralistic neoliberal rhetorics of fear uh, that predominate healthcare ideologies in the United States. Uh, uh, these persons are, are seen as imperiling society with this escalating epidemic, and they're in need of some sort of control. And uh, now, readily conducted through a laparoscopic procedures, the surgery is reframed as quick, safe, and cost-effective. And so patients and their providers are kind of morally responsibilized to pursue it in order to unburden both sufferers and the public from the liability that they place on the healthcare system. Uh, so dramatic impacts on the quality of patient lives are brought about by the shifts in selfhood in relations to others that the preparation for and adaptation to post-surgical bodies demand. Uh, in the context of attention to the relational aspects of care, our analysis highlights bariatric patients amending enactments of self-care and caring for others as these unfold along a temporally and spatially staged trajectory uh, within and away from the clinic. While the success or failure of weight loss is quantified mainly with uh, BMI points, actual results depend greatly on the quality of the patient's reworking of their lives, especially around food and eating. Um, so for the remainder of the paper, I'll draw out some examples from our uh, ethnography to highlight how shifting food socialities are entangled in intersubjective embodiments across uh, relational and effect effective practices of care. Uh, in the clinical preparation for their physical transformation, patients are coached towards their new and, of course, improved social selves as a metamorphosis that is necessary and imagined to parallel their normatizing bodies. So uh, where Manderson describes the reconstitution of self after surgery for persons whose corporeality is no longer uh, reconciled with their desired abilities to control it, the patients in our study uh, experience post-surgical life as enactments of not only the recovery of self, but of a fuller potential new self. And so while living at very different ends of this post-surgical continuum of selfhood, Manderson's and our uh, interlocutors share the adaptive strategy of gaining and claiming new personal qualities in their reconciliation to embodied change. Their new bodies beckon them to their new selves, disease-free, energetic, able, and confident to live productive, productively. Uh, however, unlike Vogel and Maul's account of Dutch weight loss dieters training, which focused on self-caringly enjoying food, self-caring in our clinical context reoriented patients towards enjoyment through freedom from food, problematic for its associations with stress, comfort, and cravings. Assured that their altered bodies will dictate not only the quantity of food they can tolerate, patients will benefit from surprising physiologically induced changes in their taste, as uh, Stanley talked about yesterday, a lot more interesting things maybe to talk about there in terms of the way people's tastes change after bariatric surgery, uh, and, and the likelihood as well that they'll forget to eat at all, and they need to set reminders uh, to, to tell them to eat and drink water, as this little uh, smartphone app you see here uh, helps people with. 
So their food retraining focuses on the acquisition of self-care skills uh, that include monitoring nutrition and developing attentiveness to their body's new and strange messages. Uh, as our 42-year-old participant Zoe noted, uh, she talked about how her, her mother and she did not get along very well. And she says, so I would eat. Food became a part of love and comfort, as well as everything else. So that's all been a big thing I've worked on over the last year and a half to kind of change my relationship with food. I know a lot of people have that problem with food. You have a relationship with it. It's one of your best friends. Uh, and so familiarizing metaphors of care come in handy here. One interesting figure who appears on this tra uh, transitional trajectory is the patient's own post-surgical stomach anthropomorphized as a newborn baby. Echoing Merleau-Ponty's phenomenological body, this infant stomach is both the patient's self and an other fragile, vulnerable self, reliant upon the patient's provision of dutiful parental care. The neonate stomach will writhe, cry, and fuss, demanding continuous attention to which the patient learns to respond with appropriate care. In weekly classes aimed at preparing patients for post-operative self-care, this postnatal allegory finds utility across several dimensions of messaging with which the clinicians empower the patients to care for their newborn. Uh, for example, in one class led by the clinician's behaviorist, where the point was to drive home the importance of eating very slowly and chewing food to a very soft consistency, he advised them to see their new stomachs like a brand new baby infant. It's your new baby stomach. Feed yourself like a new baby. Baby your stomach. Baby yourself. In another class, one of the dietitians was explaining the importance of a very gradual transition in food textures and warned, quote, your stomach is not happy for a while. You'll want to take care of it. Handouts she provided suggested making food to baby food consistency, eating actual baby food, or eating with a toddler spoon. This seemed to be taken up well by the patients, uh, and such as uh, Elaine, who we interviewed about four months after her surgery, and she explained, if you eat something, it's like your stomach is a newborn baby stomach. Now I can see what, what happens when they spit up you can just regurgitate it out. So with the new stomach, you have to follow what they say and try to eat only what you're supposed to eat and nothing else. Uh, another dimension of the transformation of socialities around food for bariatric patients involves the expectation that they engage in profound introspection and reconsideration of relationships, especially with people who possibly enabled or are sustained by the patient's own self-sense of self-worth. Uh, in the reincorporation to daily life, come on salady or eating with others, tests the fortitude of these relations of care. Continuity and change in these relations around food and health knowledge were often at the center of the alignment patients sought between self-care, caring for others, and others caring for them. While some now saw themselves as crusaders of change and improvement of commensal relations, most related strategies for their success in terms of accommodating the continuity of unhealthy choices by the others in their lives. For example, many continued to join in at restaurants and family meals by not eating, splitting meals with others, making their own meal, or taking along what one interviewee deemed her bariatric staples, a protein drink, yogurt, and applesauce. Uh, Elaine described the perils of eating together, illustrating with the story of a friend's invitation to lunch. She told us, one of my friends wanted me to go to Applebee's, and I said, I'm, I'll order from the children's meals. 
I can hardly eat anything. Uh, so she decided to try a grilled cheese sandwich. She asked uh, them to just use Pam spray to brown it uh, so that there was no butter, uh, not too much fat. And then she explains how when she took the bread apart, she just ate some of the cheese in it, and then she was quite sick afterwards. She was as sick as I could be. Uh, so also, you know, rather than being the, the kind of seen as a site of failure or recklessness, eating alone uh, was actually a common avenue that people took to maintain these relations uh, that matter, as well as uh, trying to heed the demands of their new bodies. Uh, so, uh, for some, eating became a solitary, regimented bodily necessity, feeding their bariatric stomach every few hours, uh, spending hours taking post-surgery supplements and vitamins often uh, kind of took them, you would think would take them away from these uh, eating together opportunities, but it's something that they did in order to participate in them. Um, nonetheless, it was kind of a lonely um, uh, experience. As one participant professed, I'm supposed to try and eat every two hours, and I'm not doing that because I'm just like, it feels like I'm forcing it. I'm probably eating every th maybe three times a day right now, and I know I need to eat more, um, but I feel like I'm forcing it. Or as Elaine aptly explained, it's like prior to surgery, I was eating to enjoy. Now I eat to sustain. Uh, for others, meal replacement, liquid drinks or shakes, which had initially been a part of their medically monitored weight loss and surgery program and not intended for more than a six-month period of use, became a panacea for both continuing to join in with others and coping with post-surgical regimens aimed at consuming target quantities of nutrients. Um, after a, year, uh, a year after surgery, Sean Williams described how protein shakes fit conveniently into his life as a truck driver, although his tone suggested he knew it wasn't medically recommended. He told us, I'd overeat and then, being a trucker, you climb in the truck and you go to sleep. So now I've changed it up with the premier protein shakes and I'm doing things a little bit different. I do a lot of little snacks during the day like string cheese, but I replaced a lot of meals with the shakes still. Uh, I'm close to being a year out here and I'm still on the shakes. Although Sean is on the road many hours a week, he drives short hauls so he can be home with his family as much as possible. This included events that revolved a lot around food, what he called the Williams eating days. These were huge Sunday dinners that he and his wife hosted for their four adult children, their spouses and children, and his father. His continuation of the shake regimen allowed him to enjoy these get-togethers even as he acknowledged the gatherings were problematic uh, for the health of other family members, particularly for two of his daughters, who he described as severely overweight. Uh, finally, the transformation of caring others is an important entanglement of the shifting food socialities of bariatric patients. The clinic offered weekly support groups and classes where people who had had surgery could return indefinitely. There they could find both encouragement and commiseration. However, the consistent and recurring message conveyed by clinicians who led these sessions was to define support as engaging a turning point in which those who had undergone the surgery repositioned themselves at the center of caring in their personal, personal relationships. Evidence cited by the clinicians suggested that success is greater for those with family, friends, and sometimes work colleagues or others who not only accept the medical necessity of the surgery, but provide support by changing alongside the person who's had the procedure. A handout provided in one clinic linked the inappropriate support of others to stress that would spell failure 
uh, as those who don't care are people who smoke, drink, alcohol, or demand that you eat, cook, and have unhealthy food in the home. Supporters who care will ask, are you getting enough protein, and make you feel more like you're doing all the things you have learned. Uh, the handout emphasized that patients stand up for your choice. It's your body, your health, your life, and your right to make this choice. If there are any key people in your life who are skeptical or cautious, try to involve them in the surgical process as early as possible. Bring them to support groups, to appointments, and information sessions. For many, family members and others fit the definition of caring support persons, overhauling their own diets and eating habits. Uh, but perhaps the definitive expression of support came from family and friends who undertook the ultimate change of having the surgery themselves. Sean's wife, who I talked about, the trucker I talked about earlier, uh, had had the sur his wife had had the surgery four years before him, and he'd been talking for six years to who, one of his daughters about having it too, um, but was having trouble convincing her. He said, I'm scared for my daughter. I want her to have the surgery, but I can tell I hurt her feelings when I bring it up. Elaine, on the other hand, had seven people in her life who have had the surgery, including five family members. Devout Christians, it's a sisterhood of surgery of sorts, enacting on their bodies an emulation of the sacrifice made by Christ in, in giving up his own body. As she explained, so five of us had the surgery, and not to mention very close friends of mine, two, two of them. So there are like seven of us and we, uh, that have had it in the last four years. And we actually used to call our team, Team We Want to Live. We want to live, you know, as the Bible said, I shall live and not die so I can proclaim the work of the Lord. So, you know, in order to, we've got to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Christ. So we want to live. For some, uh, for some concluding thoughts, the adaptations to uh, post-bariatric surgical life involve radical transformations of the self and of others which test and transform relations of care enacted through food socialities. Here, this is perhaps best summed up by Zoe, who exalted her surgeon not only her, for her skill with the scalpel, but for her ability to reframe the procedure in simple terms of its fundamentally social implications. She's great, she's great, she said about the surgeon. She gave us a line that I've been using with other people now. Bariatric surgic doesn't fail. Uh, people fail bariatric surgery. Zoe's uptake of this catchphrase underlines not only the patient's responsibility for self-discipline, but that of the collective others who also embody the surgery's transformation, and with whom relations of sharing, support, and care are renegotiated. This social drama seems to end well with, uh, with happiness, for most of our participants didn't regret the surgery. In the end, their satisfaction was not just with the transformation of their bodies, but the relations ensconced in the care and redefinition of care for which the surgery, in Sordis's terms, was the vector. The phenomenology of bariatric surgery is, as Lona Groena has described, contagious. Uh, the enactments of bariatric surgery on and through bodies is particularly salient for understanding the cultural phenomenological processes that interlace experience, community, ideologies, and structures. Food, eating, and commensality are the material means through which this embodiment takes place, not just by the person undergoing the surgery, but by significant others, starting with the patient's own stomach, who becomes the first other with whom she or he negotiates new food socialities. 
Healthcare ideologies, systems, and policies act and are acted upon in interlocution across the continuum of meaning-making in clinical, self, and relational practices of care. As reflected in this HBO video series, American obesity overlays this continuum in embodiments of care as, uh, I just sort of overlaid this myself, as duty, responsibility, protection, and burden, which also align with the spaces of the, of the clinic, the, the self, the family, and uh, structures of healthcare. So in this context, interventions on the body which circumvent or force self-care and lifestyle change may be morally enacted in experience, habitus, and power relations as authorita uh, and authoritatively revise understanding of chronic disease as well as potentially chronically ill bodies. These transformations, which we ethnographers observe so well, articulate with chronicity in the way that Carolyn Smith-Morris describes as a process in which the goal of the sufferer is reintegration, but the return to continuity comes not from the change, but from their inner work of identity transformation. Our research reveals bariatric surgery's intersubjective embodiments in the dynamics of the social relations in which this identity transformation occurs, as well as across the social landscape of the individual upon whose body it has intervened. Thank you. Mm -hmm.